Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are starting a new Wednesday series, Walking Through the Book, Through New Eyes by James Jordan. Here, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John will discuss the introduction and the first chapter of the book. This would be a great time to go ahead and order this book. We've provided a link down there in the show notes for you to do just that, and we invite you to read this book alongside us. A couple of events coming up that we want to keep you aware of. Next week, November 11th and 12th, we will be in Maine for our course on how to sing the Psalms. Paul Buckley and I will be teaching that course, and there's a link down there in the show notes for you to check that out. Also, we have announced our next intensive course, which will be in the month of March with Peter Lightheart, and that course is entitled Paul, Apostle of the Risen David. And that course, again, will be taught by Peter Lightheart, and we'll be discussing Pauline theology. With that, we really hope that you enjoy this discussion, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Through New Eyes. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. Uh, Jeff Myers is unfortunately unavailable. Uh, Perhaps he'll be able to join us later, but uh, he's unavailable at the moment. We are starting a new series for the podcast. Just finished a series on James with uh, Brian Motes taking my place for that series. But we decided to go through a book, not a book of the Bible, but a book about the Bible, a key book for all of us that has been formative for the way we read the scriptures, the formative for our imaginations about theology. The book is uh, James Jordan's Through New Eyes, Developing a Biblical View of the World, which was originally published back in the late 1980s and has uh, continued to be a source of inspiration. Uh, People today are discovering uh, Jim Jordan's works for the first time and and are being blown away as, as many of us were many years ago. Uh, So we'll be going through basically chapter by chapter and discussing some of the highlights of each of the sections of the book. Uh, But I wanted to start by talking a little bit about uh, what this book has meant and how we came first came across it. I honestly can't remember the first time I read the book, but that's because I had already become familiar with Jim. I first met Jim back in 1982. He was living in Tyler, Texas. I was living in Atlanta and I drove over to Tyler to attend a conference that uh, Jim was hosting and was able to sit down with him one-on-one for an hour and then chatted with him in on the margins of the, uh, on the, of the uh, conference. And after that visit, I started writing for the various newsletters that were being put out from Tyler. This was before Biblical Horizons existed. Jim was part of a group that was starting the Geneva Divinity School in Tyler, Texas, And he was publishing uh, several different newsletters that uh, went under the umbrella of Geneva Ministries. And I had been reading those for a couple of years, and I started writing for them. And so uh, Jim and I were trading ideas and writing uh, along the same lines. I was already inspired by things that he had written in the newsletters. By the time the book came out, they're uh, largely things that uh, I had read Jim talk about. It was all presented more systematically and, and formally, but there were things that I had there were, there were grooves that had already been forged in my thinking in the way I was approaching scripture. Um, so the book wasn't as, uh, didn't seem as radical itself, but over the years, I'd, uh, I've consulted it more than any other book when I'm 
when I'm doing um, biblical study, when I'm studying for a sermon, when I was preaching regularly as a pastor, I would be working on a passage and I would frequently go to Through New Eyes thinking, I wonder what Jim has to say about this. And uh, sometimes it was only half of a sentence where he would allude to the passage I was working on. But that half sentence opened up a whole range of associations and, and, uh, and was formative for everything I was uh, going to do in the, uh, in the sermon. So I, my copy, my old copy of Through New Eyes, which, which I got when it was first published, is uh, falling apart. It's dog-eared. It's got marginal notes everywhere. And uh, it's uh, one of the most, uh, one, of the, one of the handful of books that I've consulted most regularly over the years. And I, I consider it to be uh, the best book on uh, the Bible that I have ever read. Uh, I think it's, uh, there are many, many good books on scripture, but nothing gets to the depths of the Bible the way that Through New Eyes does. Nothing gives a comprehensive view of the way that uh, the Bible works and the the, the worldview, the, the uh, world picture that the Bible presents. I don't think anything gets as gets that as completely or as accurately as Jim's, Jim's work does. So it's been, it's been hugely important for me. Um, my friendship with Jim has been hugely important, and the book has been hugely important. But I know that, uh, Alistair and James, you have different experiences with Through New Eyes, and, uh, and I thought it'd be worthwhile just to give some personal recollections about your first encounters with the book. My first encounter with the book was um, fairly abortive. I started off reading it thought it was so strange and bizarre and so different from the way that I'd been accustomed to reading the Bible that I just put it to one side and didn't revisit it for a while afterwards. And then when I picked it up again and read through it, suddenly things fell into place. And in many ways, I'd been raised with so much scripture and it was like this big tinderbox that was just waiting to go up. And when that framework for seeing things um, and recognizing the um, symbolism that's at play in scripture came into view and into focus. It just enabled me to fit things together in a new way. And one of the things that I've found um, in my reading, there are many books that have helped me to read particular parts of the Bible. Um, maybe a particular passage has been illuminated by a uh, an academic article or something like that. Through New Eyes is, above all, the books I've read, the book that's helped me to read every part of the Bible, to get an angle upon the Bible that helps me to see it in its own terms, to be attentive to the text. And for me, I think that's something that can often be lacking in many people's approach to the text. They come to the text forearmed with a particular framework and um, set a modern assumptions about what the text should do, the sorts of questions it should answer. And Through New Eyes, I think, is really helping us to get on the Bible's own wavelength, to be attentive to the sorts of things that it's doing. And we find out that it's very strange and foreign to us at first, but when you begin to take that approach and follow it through, suddenly the Bible opens out as this rich world that's populated with all of these different symbols. And then over time, you begin to realize this is the world that we inhabit. And it makes a lot more sense, I think, of how we understand the relationship between the Bible and our lives, the church and the world. And so I've found it to be the most 
stimulating and the most, um, I suppose, it is the most seminal book that I've read. It's the book that's led to the most thoughts downstream from it. I'm, I'm curious, Alistair, uh, what happened between your first attempt to read it, uh, uh, read through New Eyes, and your second? What did, had, had, had you gone through some kind of theological development so that you were more receptive to it? I was going through something of a development at that point. I started off with a very systematic theological framework, and I was trying to fit things into that. Um, but then I, I also, there were obviously enough seeds that the beginning of the book had sown in my mind that I came back to the book and I thought, okay, I'm going to give this another try. There was something there that was niggling it at me, I presume. Um, I can't remember exactly what happened in the interim, but that experience of reading it again and having so many people that I respected and whose reading of scripture inspired me, recommending the book, I think made a difference. Yeah, I think that that's been, that's been uh, an experience of mine, not with, not with the book as a whole, because I got exposed to Jim fairly early on before he, before he wrote the book. But um, on specific passages and specific things that Jim says, I, it often at, at Biblical Horizons Conference, my, our experience was often that Jim would say something that seemed outlandish uh, at the beginning. Uh, he always there was always something fresh at every at every Biblical Horizons Conference, some some angle we hadn't thought about, uh, and um, we were skeptical at the beginning. And then over time, other pieces began to fall into place, and we would realize that. Uh, what Jim had said it did have some uh, did have some merit, and then uh, eventually it gets to the point where it's well, this is just this is just self evident, <laughs> which is the way that he presented it in the first place. Of course, that's that's the way he presents everything. Uh, this is just self evident. Uh, he sees it uh, when uh, when many many of the rest of us don't. But um, what your experience with the book was uh, has been my frequent experience with Jim on more particular more particular questions. Uh, James, do you have any have any uh, reminiscences about uh, about Jim's work in general, or about Through New Eyes? Well, I, I have precisely zero reminiscences, I guess, because this is my first time reading it. So <laughs> I have read literally the introduction and the first two chapters. Um, you, you'll be pleased to know I'm, I'm loving it so far. Um, it, it's, it, it's an unusual experience because I feel very familiar with a lot of the stuff, which I guess is testimony to the amount of influence that it's had on the various people who I've listened to and the extent to which it's it's formed other people's teaching and worldview and, and so forth. But one of the things that has immediately struck me is just picking the thing up and looking at the cover casually and reading through new eyes. My instant thinking is this is going to be a book teaching me to read the Bible in a different way and to, to view the Bible through new eyes. So not through, I don't know, some covenant framework or this, that, or the other framework, but in some new way. And I mean, it is, but ultimately, Jim makes the point a number of times in the first few chapters, it's about viewing the world through new eyes and viewing God's creation, the physical, material creation in a new way and yes through biblical uh, 
what would you say, lenses or, you know, in a biblically shaped and uh, defined way. But ultimately, um, yeah, the focus of it is is the world and, and so forth. Yeah, that's uh, that's right. The, the original cover, you probably don't have a, a book with the original cover on it, but the original cover had a pair of glasses uh, <laughs> and through the pair of glasses, you could see, uh, I don't know, a map or a globe or something. So that uh, he was picking up on the uh, Calvin's image of viewing the world through the spectacles of scripture. So that's, uh, it, I mean, it's a both end, obviously. He's trying to give us, um, trying to introduce us to what he calls the thought forms of the Bible itself. Uh, and while he's introducing us to the thought forms of the Bible, he's also uh, showing how those thought forms affect the way we uh, grasp the world, we understand it, we understand the, the, the scope of the movement of history and so on. So, uh, but that, that's, yeah, you're right. That's an important part of it. I'm glad that you, uh, in fact, that you haven't read it um, because I think it'll be good to have a kind of virginal perspective on the book as we go through. Uh, you're, you're, we have somebody who's getting their first impressions. It's, it's so much a part of my, my intellectual equipment that it's hard to, it's hard to remember what I've thought of and what I've picked up from Jim. The same thing would be true for Jeff. I'm, I'm disappointed Jeff isn't with us this, this, uh, for this episode because he, He's known Jim even longer than I had have, and mm. he was in Jim's classroom uh, in, at the Geneva Divinity School for a couple of years in Tyler, Texas, and mm. so he's uh, he's very much been formed by by what uh, the way that Jim approaches scripture, right? Mm. And in a sense, isn't that often the way with books which are genuinely kind of new and groundbreaking? That initially people say like. They're nuts, you know. This is just bonkers. And then a while later, after they've had their impact, people just start saying, "Oh, that's the way people have always seen stuff. It, it's it's just common sense," you know. Right, right. And I've 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 seen that over the years. I don't know. Uh, it's hard for me to trace connections from uh, Jordan's work to the various writers who are saying things like uh, what he has in Through New Eyes. But I've seen that in various various places. The 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 uh, the interest in in the in the sanctuary and the temple and the tabernacle and the connection between the tabernacle and temple back to creation uh, and the Garden of Eden and the form of the original creation uh, that is that's uh, that's a, a paradigm that's a way of looking at the sanctuaries that uh, I learned from Jim and through through new eyes. Beale has now picked it up. Uh, Michael Morales has uh, done extensive work on the on the prefiguration of the tabernacle. The tabernacle prefigured is Morales's book, which is fabulous. And this is this has become kind of common sense that the sanctuaries are built on the model of Eden, and that the Garden of Eden was the original sanctuary. Uh, that that connection, which I think is a very fruitful uh, um, uh, generative connection, uh, is is something that's become kind of common knowledge. Uh, that uh, at the time that Jim was writing, I don't I, I think there were very few who were saying that kind of thing. I don't think that it's direct influence from Jim, but it's there's there is this kind of groundswell of interest in uh, in the Old Testament sanctuaries. That's always one of the challenges in assessing the significance of someone like Jim's work when they're so um, seminal and so Im influential on key people who are reading the Bible down the line. Um, it's very hard to pinpoint um, exactly what they're contributing when you're going back to read their work, because so much of their thought has um, 
influenced other people and it's spread. And it's not necessarily clear those lines by which it has spread, because many people um, who are far more well known than Jim have been spreading this stuff later on. But Jim's book has been a, a sort of, um, it's been an open secret among a number of people who have just been profoundly influenced by it and then influencing other people by their thoughts on it. And so you've got far more well-known figures who are sharing ideas that you heard first in Jim. And there's always, um, for me, a sense, well, Jim should get some credit for this because he's not known for this discovery. Someone else is known for it, but he was on this particular issue long before this person came along. And you find that many times reading through Jim. And then going back, it's important just to consider the context into which this came and how many of the things that Jim was saying were original and didn't really have um, strong um, precedent or didn't have a large group of people in the guild saying these things. At this point, it's a lot easier to lose sight of just how important a contribution this book was because it has been influential, but in secret ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... um... It, there's an interesting investigation of the kind of sociology of biblical scholarship and the politics of biblical scholarship. I, I have little doubt that uh, some people read Jim, but were not willing to acknowledge indebtedness to him because of his early associations with Reconstructionism. I mean, he, he uh, like myself, he was a contributor to R.J. Rushdoony's uh, Chalcedon Report um, many, many years ago. Uh, when he was in Tyler, he was a uh, uh, Gary North, uh, another major Reconstructionist, was there and uh, was part of the project that they were pursuing. Uh, and Jim had those associations from early on. Um, so uh, the association with theonomy and theonomy had become a, a, a controversial issue in Reformed churches. Uh, theonomists had caused uh, uh, had caused a stir, uh, sometimes because of the ideas, sometimes because of radicalism of the ideas sometimes because uh, people misbehaved and, and were uncharitable in the way that they presented those ideas. Uh, but from that mix, uh, uh, you know, theonomy and reconstruction just got a bad reputation. And so uh, you don't want to endorse somebody who's associated with that, even though you find his work compelling. So I, I think there's, there's an element of that going on uh, in the, uh, uh, again, in the kind of sociology. I wouldn't attribute all of Jim's comparative anonymity uh, to deliberate avoidance, but I think that's a factor. I think beyond that, there's the fact that he's a Bible teacher, um, not someone who's operating within the academic guild, although he's very clearly aware of the academic literature and drawing upon it throughout. And if you study his footnotes and if you talk to him about his influences, it's very clear that he is aware of the debates that were going on and those were informing his studies. But the fact that he's a Bible teacher primarily operating within the context of the church, not the academy, again, I think, leads to um, prejudices against drawing upon his work. Let's get into some of the substance of the first uh, of the introduction, the first chapter. That's what we're going to try to cover in this episode. I've already used uh, one of Jim's phrases in the introduction. He says his purpose in the book is to try to familiarize the reader with the Bible's own thought forms. And he describes those as uh, the thought forms of the Bible are 
uh, symbolic and uh, typological. Uh, the Bible speaks to us about various things, but he doesn't speak to us in a scientific or philosophical fashion, but instead speaks to us in symbols. So when it uh, he uses various examples, but he uses example, uh, the example of animals. Uh, when it talks about classification of animals, it doesn't classify animals uh, with the same kind of scientific taxonomy that uh, modern scientists use. It uh, uses a symbolic, uh, a symbolic matrix. So certain kinds of animals are alter animals uh, and are, uh, are uh, fit to, to be offered in sacrifice. Certain kinds of animals are clean uh, and therefore can be consumed, but are not alter animals. And then certain animals are unclean. And those distinctions are not distinctions that are scientific. They're not based in the, uh, in the biology of the animal or even in the animal's habits uh, or not, not primarily in the animal's habits, but they're, uh, that classification of animals is linked up with the classification of different groups of human beings. So the sanctuary, the, the altar animals are, are linked up with the priesthood and the high priest. The, the clean animals represent Israel. The unclean animals are the Gentiles. Uh, you have wild, wild but clean animals that would represent uh, and uh, that would represent Gentiles that are outside of Israel and yet have been cleansed and worship their worshipers of Yahweh. That's one example that he develops briefly in the introduction about how uh, the Bible gives us uh, not a, a not a scientific uh, perspective on the world, but it, it teaches us to look at the world through these symbolic lenses. One thing I think people will find as they read through the book is a sense of a very different sort of relationship between the human being and the world. When we think about the world, we can often think about it within the framework of modern science, as if man was somehow outside of the world, looking at this realm of stuff and trying to understand it, and not being always already embedded within this realm of meaning that is his home. And that, I think, is a shift that's taken place particularly through modern science. E.A. Burt writes about Galileo and the metaphysical foundations of modern science. The features of the world now classed as secondary, unreal, ignoble, and regarded as dependent on the deceitfulness of sense are just those features which are most intense to man in all but his purely theoretic activity. And even in that, except where he confines himself strictly to the mathematical method. It was inevitable that in these circumstances, man should now appear to be outside of the real world. Man is hardly more than a bundle of secondary qualities. And a lot of modern science, just because of the metaphysical assumptions that it's operating in terms of, when they're totalized, can evict man from the home of the creation. And if you're reading through new eyes, I think one of the things that you'll find is that sense of finding yourself at home within the world once again, at home within the scripture, but also at home within the wider creation, that mankind was designed to see the world, and the world was designed to be a site of meaning and a place where we are embedded and within which um, there is fellowship with God, where there are connections of meaning between the lower creation and the human creation, between the heavens above and the earth beneath, and all these sorts of dynamics that the scientific order and the scientific sorts of metaphysics that we have, have tended to remove from our view. 
something I thought we might discuss, and I'd be interested to know if, if you think I've understood this rightly, is the distinction that Jim draws between a what he calls a Christian worldview and a, a biblical worldview. And as I see it, Jim would want to say that a Christian worldview is kind of a biblically inspired worldview in in some way. So a Christian view of history might, for instance, I don't know, describe um, events over, let's say, recent centuries and different schools of thought that have developed there, different empires, the causal connections between those things, etc. Whereas I would assume that what he means by a biblical view of history would be just thinking very hard about the kind of images that the Bible uses to describe history. So let's say the um, image of Daniel's Colossus and what that tells us about the way in which history flows, the way it portrays empire, what you know, the hardness of different metals means, etc. Um, and then talking about different ages in, in the Bible and, and so on. And doing all that huge amount of groundwork first before then trying to start to make sense of later sort of post-biblical periods of history. Um, do, do you think that's a, a kind of right way of conceptualising that kind of distinction that Jim's trying to make? Yeah, I think that's I think that's getting at it. The um, and, and that that distinction between a Christian worldview and a biblical worldview is parallel to the distinction that he makes between a, a philosophical uh, worldview and a and a sy- symbolic worldview. So uh, and and just to just to make sure that we uh, make this point, uh, Jim is not opposed to a kind of philosophical worldview, and he's. You know, he's he's thinking and uh, writing back in the late '80s. He's thinking of Henry Van Til's book on the Calvinist con- uh, uh, concept of culture, or uh, Kuyper's book on lectures on Calvinism, and the development of a of a a worldview that's based on Christian truth, a view of uh, man, a view of marriage and family, a view of politics, a view of uh, the natural world that's that's rooted in Christian truth but isn't using the idiom and the categories that are found in the Bible. Uh, so the, the philosophical, the more philosophical view, he's, he's perfectly, uh, con- he's perfectly, uh, he approves of that, but that's not the same thing as trying to think through um, uh, how the Bible gives us categories to, uh, to, to look at the world. And the, the specific example he gives uh, when he talks about history in the introduction, uh, he gives a, uh, talks about the, the way that, Time is arranged by um, by festivals and by various kinds of calendars, and so that's he's that that has that contributes to a, a biblical picture of the world, rather than again thinking in in philosophical terms, in philosophical terms about how history develops. It's through the uh, the organization of time by commemorative festivals that mark out certain certain moments of time. That's one of that's that's a that's a central way that the Bible teaches us about the the movement of history, right? And so, if I understand rightly, I would see then what Jim calls the biblical worldview as a necessary precursor for the Christian worldview that's going to flesh out the kind of things you're talking about, Peter. And in a similar way, maybe it isn't exactly the same, but if I want to 
understand how the Old Testament view of sacrifice um, leads us to rightly understand Christ's sacrifice, I want to start in, let's say, well, not in Leviticus, but start from the start, but spend a huge amount of time thinking about how something like the Levitical system worked on its own terms. If I was alive in Moses's day, when would I go to the sanctuary? Why would I go there? What would I do? What would I think, etc.? And doing all that groundwork long before you've started to make any sort of later and further applications of it. Yeah, I think that's right. He and he would and he would. I, I think he would say and uh, he doesn't say it. Uh, to my mind, he doesn't say it real explicitly in the opening couple of chapters, but he would say that. The, the biblical world picture and the, and the way that the biblical world picture works might force us to adjust or to um, modify the more abstracted way that we think about these, these things, the more, again, the more philosophic or systematic theological way that we think about these things. Um, but the, it's, it does seem like there's a bit of ambiguity in the opening chapters where, when he talks about that, because he, he, he contrasts the, the philosophic with the symbolic early on, and both of them are valid ways of approach. Uh, and I think the, the, the balance certainly of the whole book is we need to learn how the Bible speaks and we learn to th- learn to think in those terms. And that needs to inform whatever more abstracted ways that we think. But then he gets to the end of chapter one and he's talking about the rules for interpretation. And a couple of the rules are that the systematic theology and the history of exegesis provide a certain kind of check on um, on our on our uh, imaginative flights, you know, we're we're trying to interpret uh, we're trying to interpret sim, uh, symbols within the Bible, but nobody in the history of biblical interpretation has ever seen what we're seeing. That should be a caution about drawing a conclusion, but that seems to put systematic theology in kind of a, a controlling role. And then another of the rules is that symbolism has to be interpreted in terms of biblical presuppositions and biblical philosophy. So again, you put philosophy more in a controlling thing. And I, I guess the, the ultimate result is a kind of interactive uh, process where uh, the Bible and biblical categories continuously refresh and reform our philosophical categories and refresh and reform our systematic categories. But at the same time, those systematic and philosophical categories do have a certain degree of, there's a certain kind of check on uh, uh, and, um, and control on the way that we're interpreting the Bible, but there's a, I think there's a something of a, a tension. Maybe it's a necessary tension, but there's something of a tension in the way that Jim presents that. I also wonder how much of it is the fact that in that um, historical context, worldview was a very popular term, and it was a sort of buzz term for the sorts of ways in which Christians were trying to avoid. Um, taking on board non-Christian presuppositions, trying to present an understanding of reality and Christian truth that is consistently built upon the foundation of revelation. And there are ways in which Jim wants to reform the way that people are doing that, but without suggesting that he's against the whole project. And so as you read through the book, I think you get a sense that you can't just go on doing Christian worldview as if you've never read this book. Um, But at the same time, he's not rejecting everything that's been occurring under that terminology. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That he's, he's, he's speaking into a context where 
a Christian worldview, as you said, is a buzz term. I think that's still the case. I mean, the, it's kind of filtered down from intellectuals and Christian thinkers uh, into, you know, classical Christian schools are all about trying to present a biblical world or a Christian worldview of whatever they're happen to be studying. But uh, I think that in, in large measure, that Christian worldview does operate in the same kind of categories as the, the thing that Jim is trying to, trying to modify. And the more biblical idiom has not filtered into those, uh, into those settings. I did want to go back to something that uh, we, we had mentioned at the beginning that uh, Alistair, I think, said this, and I think it's a, it's a crucial point that um, the Bible puts us in the world that we experience on a day-to-day basis. It doesn't take us out of that world into some kind of, it doesn't try to elevate us into some kind of world of forms or something like that. It doesn't even uh, very explicitly, it doesn't, doesn't explicitly take us into a kind of uh, a metaphysics of reality. It just gives us the world that we experience and shows how the world that we experience is, uh, as we'll talk about in the next episode, how it's a, a revelation of God, how it's uh, instructive to human beings, uh, how it displays the glory of God but it's the world that we experience. And one of the things that Jim says a couple of times, which I think is really crucial, is that that experiential or what he sometimes calls phenomenal or phenomenological account of the world is true. Uh, It's not as if the scientific account of the world is a true account. And uh, the more, more naive experiential world is, is not an accurate or truthful account of the world. Uh, scientific, sci- scientific accounts of the world get at things that are not apparent, um, as do certain kinds of philosophical accounts of the world. Uh, but the, the, more, the more naive uh, experiential account is correct. I mean, he, he points out, for example, that uh, Genesis 1 describes the sun as the greater light. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. So. Um, Perfect, perfectly accurate and literally true descriptions of the sun and the moon. Um, there's a whole lot more to say about the sun and the moon scientifically, uh, how the how the how the uh, solar system operates. Uh, science is, uh, scientific investigation, astronomical investigation is illuminating, but it doesn't eliminate the simple truth that uh, the sun is the greater light and the moon is the lesser light, uh, and uh, uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't eliminate the kinds of uh, experiences and kind of the, the poetic character of our daily experience of those, of those lights. You know, the, if, you, if you make the scientific, uh, scientific account of things, the true account and everything else is just kind of epiphenomenal or secondary or somehow untrue, then, um, yeah, you're, you're, you have this doubt about your senses. You lose, you lose the richness of human experience. You lose the richness of the world. Uh, and uh, you just are operating on a single level. The example that I'd, I'd like to use is the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the notion that the sun rises, which the Bible uses. Uh, and we use, even though we live in a post-Copernican uh, world, we still talk about the sun rising. And we talk that way, not because we're stuck on an old-fashioned cosmology, but because the sun does rise. Uh, if you get up early enough in the morning, you can see it, and the sun does set. It goes up and it goes down. That's a perfectly true description of what's happening, uh, given the location of the observer, which is on Earth. That's the only location that we have, most of us have had, for, for looking at the movement of the sun. Uh, 
but that's, that's, there's nothing untrue about that. It's, uh, it's, it's literally true. The, that experiential world is literally, literally uh, a true account of, of reality. Yeah, I wonder if part of what Jim's wanting to do, to do here is to slightly deconstruct the, um, the distinction we draw between how things appear and, I don't know, maybe how things really are. And so Jim uses the language of appearance, I think, in either chapter one or the introduction. I can't, I can't re- remember which one now. Um, in in the sense that, um, I don't know, the leaves of the tree I'm looking at out of my window appear to me as green. And we might say, well, that's just appearance. What's really happening is light is reflecting from them at a certain frequency or something that might not even be right but imagine i've given a correct sort of scientific explanation of things we might say that's how they really are um and how they're appearing to me is as the color green but i think probably jim would want to say how things appear to us is you know a how the bible describes them but b how god has made me and my senses and god has made the, the creation um precisely so that they do appear in that way and so i, I would think we would want to kind of downplay that distinction between how things appear and, and how things they really how things really are yeah th- that's certainly the effect of what he's saying i i don't know if uh he has that particular intent but that's certainly the effect that uh, we we take we take the sensible world as the real world. And again, it's, it is, as Alistair said before, it's the world we live in. Uh, and uh, we're created to be in that world. And the Bible shows us that we're created to operate in that world and to, and to understand the world in a particular way. So I, I think that, yeah, certainly that's, a, that's an effect of what Jim is getting at. Uh, as, as he does uh, later on, he'll, uh, I think it's in the, uh, the following chapter, the third chapter that we'll talk about in another episode. But he talks about uh, the world as symbol. Uh, sim- symbolism is the reality of the world. So the whole, um, uh, I, I think of it as a post-Reformation distinction between symbol and reality. Um, that uh, wherever you locate the beginning of that distinction, that, uh, or the, the the beginning of the bifurcation between those, uh, he's saying that that's not a that's not a uh, that's not a valid way to think about the world. The world is created to be a symbol. That is what's most real, is the fact that the world symbolizes God preeminently, and then you have this network of symbols within the world, these mutually interpreting realities that also interpret human beings, and human beings interpret the world. So there's a, uh, yeah, again, a kind of deconstruction of that dualism uh, that's certainly implicit in what he's doing. Another effect of this, I think, is to jolt us out of the approach to scripture that sees it merely as dressed up ideas and propositions that if the world itself is a site of meaning and symbol, then meaning and um, truth are not just things to be found within abstract ideas. And so biblical revelation is not merely the ideas that you can distill from the text. It's also the actual concrete realities that are being described. There's meaning to be found in their interrelationship. And so actually getting into the the blood of um, Leviticus or getting into the history of 1 Samuel or getting into the 
animals that are described in various parts of scripture in the sacrifices and elsewhere, or thinking about the human body, all of these things are sites of meaning, not just abstract theology. And part of what we have, I think, in separating from the world and thinking in a very scientific um, manner, we've lost the sense of the world as a site of meaning, but also the biblical text in most of its part parts as a site of meaning, because most of the biblical text is not conveying abstract ideas. Right. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, I think all of this is, this is part of what has been stimulating for me about the book. Cause I, um, my, some of my work at least has been, uh, uh, poking into, uh, systematic theology and, uh, to some extent into kind of philosophical theology in a way that Jim, Jim doesn't do. But whenever, whenever I'm doing that, I'm doing it, uh, with Jim's categories in mind and trying to, trying to think about how the, uh, the biblical categories force us in, in certain ways to revise our, 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 our accepted categories of systematic theology or Christian philosophy. I wanted to, I wanted to bring up a particular question, uh, and get your thoughts on it. Uh, he begins chapter one with a short discussion of different interpretations of the days of creation. Uh, and I'm, uh, it's been a long time since I've uh, gone sequentially through the book. I consulted a lot, but I haven't uh, gone sequentially through the book. And I didn't remember that that was kind of the opening salvo. Um, and I wonder what you think he's trying to get at there. Um, I mean, one, one uh, thought that I had is that uh, he, um, he's, he's declaring his, kind of fundamentalist uh, uh, um, associations or uh, affiliations up front. He, he describes himself as a young earth creationist. Uh, he defends the, the, uh, the uh, idea that the, the days are normal 24 hour days. Um, but uh, it, it struck me as an interesting that he, that he makes that the opening of the whole book. What, did you have any thoughts on why, why he's doing that? My suspicion is because so much of his approach depends upon the claim that the world, the symbolic world that he's speaking about is the real world. It's not some um, overlay upon the real world. It's not as if we have the true scientific world and then we have the way in which it's dressed up within the clothes of symbolism that really don't belong to it in its actual substance. And if we have an understanding of, and I think also because it's, it's such a key battleground for the differences between these approaches, and it's also the very first page of scripture. And for all of those reasons, it seems if we're going to get this relationship between symbolism and the world right, we need to start here. This is the place where it's most likely to be under attack. This is the place where we begin. There's so much of the architecture of scripture is provided in those first few chapters. And also it just is a place where you can see the different tensions in different um, cosmologies really in play in very active debates. Yeah, I wondered also it it uh, some of the things he does in that opening couple of paragraphs uh, talking about chronology and he's used chronology in his book uh, creation in six days and also in uh, 
in other places. He's, he's used chronology as kind of a test case of a kind of Gnostic tendency in, uh, in theology and biblical interpretation, that uh, uh, instead of taking the Bible as an account of history, real history, uh, and real history having a certain, uh, you know, years pass, days, days pass. And so if you're dealing with actual history, you're dealing with dates and passing of particular periods of time. Uh, and uh, he's seen the, uh, the uh, uh, various, various reinterpretations or the various interpretations of those temporal indicators in the Bible as a sign that, uh, of, an, of an instinct to try to escape time and escape that, con- the concreteness of, uh, of the biblical record and the, and the this-worldliness, as it were, of the biblical record. So it seemed like a, um, a, it, we have a, on our, on our uh, Theopolis app, we have a, uh, I don't know if it's a single lecture or a series of lectures where he's dealing with uh, uh, Gnosticism, and that's uh, it's a really crucial set of uh, talks. Again, I don't, I think it's, I think it's a series of talks. Um, it's a really crucial uh, theme in Jim's work. Uh, and it goes back to all the things that we've been talking about, that the, the Bible is talking about the, this world, the real world. It's giving us the world of our experience. It's providing an interpretation of the world of our experience. It's providing interpretation of the world of our experience as it passes through time and through change. Uh, and uh, to try to Try to delete that temporal, those temporal features from the Bible is uh, is to really to lose what the Bible itself is about. It it also gives Jim an opportunity to start the way the Bible starts and kind of uh, prove what he's setting out to do in his work itself. So the Bible starts with Genesis. That's where he's going to start, and throughout the book, he's going to walk through in discussing his ideas. He's going to walk through the entire Bible, the entire narrative of Scripture. So it's an opportunity for him to practice what he preaches. Instead of started starting somewhere else, he on the first page gets into the days of creation. Right, and I mean that strikes me as, as right. And this is pure speculation because I haven't read the rest of the book, but I feel like it would probably undercut a lot of what Jimmy's going to want to do in following chapters, if, for instance, God had made the world over some very long expanse of millions of years in a kind of way that could be divided up into six sequences and if on the basis of that god expected us to literally work for six days and then rest on a seventh 24-hour day i feel like if that was the case it it would probably undercut a lot of other arguments jim wants to make yeah I i think that's true those are that's those are all good uh good thoughts and yeah and i um, and he's one of the themes that he's going to develop in later chapters is the the way that not just the six days of work and a day of rest that six plus one pattern sets a pattern for human life, but also how the work of each particular day sets a pattern for human action. Uh, the, the what the repeated the repeated actions uh, sequence of actions that God goes through over the course of the creation week becomes a, a way of thinking about all of human action. Uh, and again, if God didn't actually do that, then you lose the connection between the exemplar God and the and the copy human action. You, you lose that connection if uh, the Genesis one is not describing things that God actually did. Right, and especially if God could have done them, it would raise the question: Yeah, why didn't He do them like that? If that was the pattern He expected us to to follow. I think also, as you mentioned earlier on, um, Peter, that. 
need to put forward his fundamentalist credentials. I think that is an important part of this too. Um, when you're reading this book for the first time, coming from a typical evangelical background, you are maybe alarmed by the sort of symbolism and other ways of reading the scripture. Um, and you think, I've seen some of this maybe in liberal sources that seek to escape the plain meaning of the text. They're trying to look um, into categories of myth, into categories of um, the sort of, they're dealing with other ancient Near Eastern texts. They're thinking in terms of anthropological research in various tribal settings. And that's the world in which they see symbolism operate. And Jim, in starting at this point, I think, is among other things, distinguishing himself from that sort of approach that also sees symbolism, but approaches it very differently. Yeah, and that alternative approach uh, seems to uh, reflect the kinds of dualisms that we've been talking about, the dualism between a, a true account, a true scientific account of the world, and the symbolic, meaningful human account that we have in the Bible and in, in general human experience. Uh, and again, Jim's closing that gap by saying that the world itself is symbolic. Uh, the Bible is teaching us how to read the symbols of the world. It's not imposing a kind of symbolic layer on something that's not significant in itself. It's, it's drawing out and exposing the inherent uh, signifying uh, force of, of creation uh, that, that creation has because it's created by uh, a meaningful God, a, a God who speaks and a God who creates a world that's uh, that's full of meaning. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.